Prior to this incident with my mother, I completely blindly trusted doctors and hospitals. I think a lot of us do. You know, I mean, doctors save lives and they've gone to medical school. And when you, know, you go to an emergency room, you know, you just trust completely that you're going to be okay. And what I've learned now is, you know, obviously the vast majority of hospitals and doctors and nurses and healthcare providers are all doing their very best and they're excellent. But what happens when mistakes are made? Or what happens when something goes wrong? Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Today's episode is sponsored by Mediterranean ALF, a family-owned and operated boutique-assisted living facility located in the heart of Palm Beach County, Florida. At Mediterranean ALF, you can rest easy knowing your family member is receiving affordable 24-hour care in a safe, home-like environment. It probably won't come as a shock to hear that the leading cause of death in the United States is heart disease, and right behind that is cancer. But here's something that might surprise you. The third leading cause of death in the United States is medical error, and one out of every four patients in the U.S. is harmed by medical error. That's what happened after a routine partial hip replacement left the mother of filmmaker and comedian Steve Burrows in a coma with permanent brain damage. What began as Steve's personal video diary became a multi-layered investigation into the state of American healthcare, all laid bare in the film Bleed Out, a hair-raising documentary which debuts on HBO Monday, December 17th. Today we're going to speak with the film's producer, Ilan Arboleda, and its writer, director, and main character, Steve Burrows. Guys, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So, Steve, let's start with you. You were a member of the famed Groundlings Theater Troupe. You've written for TV. You've made guest appearances on TV shows, including Seinfeld and commercials. I love how you frame this as 20 years in the film, as 20 years of, quote, making a fool of myself for a living. (laughs) And yet, this background seemed to me, at least, to really make you well-suited to sort of seeking out the truth. Because as an artist, this is what you're committed to. And there's so much humanity in this film. Uh, I wonder if you could just set up the film for us beyond what I said in the intro for folks uh, who haven't had a chance to see it yet. Well, this thing became kind of an accidental film project. As I, as you said, I, I've been a comedy guy for all these years. And then, you know, my mom went in for this routine hip surgery and came out in a coma and I started you know, just asking questions. My uncle was a doctor. My aunt was a nurse. And they just said this thing just did not seem right. And they had me get the medical records. Uh, My uncle became very uh, concerned that something was amiss. He told me to become power of attorney and to get an attorney to to get to the bottom of this because things just weren't adding up. And I, my aunt and uncle, they were so deeply serious about this. I, I, I didn't realize, I don't think the severity, I knew my mom was in trouble, but I didn't know that there might be like some errors involved with this thing. And, you know, my uncle especially kind of set me on this path and gave me my marching orders. And I, once I dug in and started to look into this thing, I could not let it go. It's not really, this is not a film that I really wanted to make. It was one I ended up needing to make. And the deeper I got, 
the more I found out, the more I thought, I got to tell people what I found out here. When the neurologist told you your mom was in a coma, we hope she wakes up, but she might not. And you say that's how this whole thing got started. I'm wondering about your reaction in real time versus what we saw on camera, because you seem so sort of measured and calm on, in a sort of quasi-panic mode. But I wondered about your reaction yeah. in real time. How did you keep it together? You know, I, that's, a, that's just a great question. I haven't even thought about that since the, the day it happened. But I just thought, you know, I was being told that my mom was, uh, she'd lost some blood. Well, she actually lost a lot of blood in her, her surgery. But, the, the, you know, I was assured that she was just foggy and groggy mm-hmm. from the anesthesia. And she was kind of having a tough time waking up. But this was like day two and it wasn't making sense. And I kind of got into this thing with this ICU doctor. And the, the Dr. Wong came in and he just said it just like that. And I could not have been less prepared. I had no idea this was coming. And I could tell by the way he said it, that this wasn't like a gray, a gray situation. This was like, he was saying that she may never wake up. Yeah. And everything just, I, everything just went into slow motion for me. I'm sure it was only like 10, 15 seconds in, in real time, but it felt like at least a, a half hour of just like, what did he just say? And I just flashed, to, you know, What's going to happen in the next day or the next week? Or is my mom going to survive? It was just a surreal uh, moment that is still, uh, a, you know, kind of a defining moment in my entire life. Yeah. and Everything then, changed when he said that. Yeah. And you then proceeded in year two to go into this routine of flying back and forth twice a month between L.A. and Wisconsin. I wondered if you could talk about this whole idea of long-distance caregiving and the terror of sort of not knowing what was next and being at a distance, how you handled that. Well, you know, my mom was... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was tough. One of the things that, uh, and maybe this was an advantage early on, is none of us knew this thing was going to go on for as long as it did. Yeah. I, at that point back then, I didn't know if my mom was going to survive. Right. So we were in definite 911 crisis mode. And then when she did come out of the coma and started to show signs of... Uh, some type of recovery. Me being in California, I, I just felt that I needed to be there because, you know, she was a single person and she's my mother. And I had a sister who lived overseas in India. So I, I was really, you know, in California, I was really the closest person to her in Wisconsin. And I was also fortunate because I had a, an incredibly understanding wife who supported kind of me finding out what was going on. And number one, it was to get my mom the best care possible for her recovery. And then to hopefully find her justice. And the film was always a distant third at that point. But going back and forth was my only option because I was trying to juggle my showbiz career and I didn't know how long it was going to be in it. And then it became clear that this was going to be a long-term thing too. You know, uh, Once she came out of it, her recovery was going to be incredibly slow, very limited. And, and still to this day, you know, I, I can't believe it's been 10 years. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, the long-distance caring mm-hmm. is... Uh, I also, I would just add that I don't, my wife and I, we don't have children. And if I, I think if I wasn't in show business and if I had kids and if I had a nine to five job and if I didn't have an incredibly understanding wife, I could have never undertaken any of this. I would have had to kind of phone it in. Yeah. Like, who can do this? Right. And it's tough. So it's, that's, yeah, that's how we kind of pulled it off. We, and we, we were really day to day and then week to week and then month to month and now year to year. Yeah. So I read that you wrote the hugely popular comedy film Chump Change in 25 days <laughs> and that you found three very wealthy people to support its filming and begin production. 
In contrast, this film was shot over the course of 10 years. So I wonder maybe, Ilan, you can talk about the production process and the timeline vis-a-vis the influence of Judy's health on the course of the production and the lawsuit. Sure. Well, Steve and I first connected in 2014 uh, through a mutual friend. A friend of mine said, you've got to hear my friend Steve's story. Uh, And I got on the phone with Steve, and our first phone call was probably a three-hour phone call where he relayed everything that had happened to him up to that point and, of course, to Judy. And for us at my company, my company is called Creative Chaos, we make films about social disruption and about social action, films that can move the dial uh, on a conversation. And we thought if this was made into a film, uh, it would be a no-brainer that it, ha- it could be incredibly impactful. It could powerfully affect uh, the reform movement in this area. It could really do something. Uh, and, of course, you know, the story was far from over at that point. Uh, but still, you know, Steve had already been in it for a number of years at that point. And we set about trying to figure out how to make it. So my business partners, uh, Tom and Steve Edwards uh, and Tom Donahue and myself, we all decided to talk to Steve about coming together to make the film. Uh, And the first course of action was to create a sort of sizzle tape out of all Mm -hmm. the years of material that Steve had sort of been collecting, a lot of it, his pain and suffering, the pain and suffering of Judy and some other footage and put into a sizzle reel. And we decided to um, pitch it to HBO and pitch it to another company called Impact Partners. And they saw it and saw what the film could be and saw what Steve had done and the incredible care for his mother that he had shown and said, this is something, we can do something with this. So we partnered with HBO and Impact Partners to set about making this film. Steve, at this point, had already had many years of footage and and many years of having gone through this process. My goal from the outset was to see how do we take this very personal story about a family and how do we extrapolate that out into a larger context, into the larger discussion of medical error and the need for medical reform and transparency and accountability. So we set out to find people in this space that we could also interview that could potentially be peppered or layered into the story that Steve was telling. Uh, And one of the amazing people that we found was uh, Dr. Marty Macri, who wrote the book Unaccountable. He was amazing. Film. Yeah, he's amazing. And he, he really is the medical social conscience of the film. And he's one of the leaders of this reform movement about accountability uh, in healthcare. So that was really what our plan of action was to do. And the idea that HBO would be an amazing platform by which to advocate for reform and for some sort of impact that the film can actually have. Yeah, there are so many entry points, really, for highlighting a range of problems with healthcare. I wonder, Steve, what was your experience of the healthcare system before this? You know, um, I, I had actually thought that I had a pretty good handle on things. My wife has MS, and she's had it for a long time. Oh. And, you know, when I first met her, she had already had MS, and, and she kind of taught me the ropes on how to deal with doctors and insurance companies and hmm. with all the complications from her illness and all of the potential side effects and medications and stuff. You know, I was absolutely convinced that I could handle anything you know, any fastball thrown at me from the medical field. And uh, as you can see in the film, I didn't know anything. <laughs> I was like, you know, we were, we had experience. I came from a family of medical people. Right. Um, Your uncle was a physician. And right? I, I really thought, yeah, yeah, my uncle was a doctor, my aunt's a nurse. So I, I really thought that between my wife and my family's background, and, you know, I've always been, I wouldn't say aggressive, but I've always been, I've never a shrinking violent with regards to, um, trying to get information, but I, I, you know, I had no idea that I was walking into a, a buzzsaw and um, I didn't, I didn't see it coming. I thought I was absolutely prepared for it and I was not. And if you could talk about maybe how your views changed as a result of this experience. 
Well, you know, I think when I heard that doctor tell me that my mom may never wake up, I, I knew I was like now going to uncharted territory, certainly for for me. And how do I get my mom the best? How do I get her care, first of all, that, that so that she can have a, has a shot here? And, you know, I, I guess prior to this incident with my mother, I completely blindly trusted doctors and hospitals. You know, I think what, what we all really, mm-hmm. rel- I think a lot of us do. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, doctors are heroes. Doctors and hospitals, they save lives and they've gone to medical school and they know the human body and, you know, they know everything. And I think I kind of always followed that when you know, you go to an emergency room, you know, you just trust completely that you're going to be okay and that you're, you know, I don't go to an emergency room and ask the doctor to see his medical diploma. Uh-huh. You know, I, I assume that he's got one. <laughs> And what I've learned now is, you know, obviously the vast majority of hospitals and doctors and nurses and all the people, the healthcare providers are all doing their very best and they're, they're excellent. But the question for us, this is really the subject matter of the film, is what happens when mistakes are made and what happens when errors are made or what happens when something goes wrong? Right. And I kind of assumed, honestly, you know, to go back to your question, I kind of assumed that when something goes wrong that there's going to be an effort to be accountable for it and be transparent about it and maybe even apologize. And in our case, none of those things happened, even 10 years out. Just and, to jump in here, yeah. um, you know, what's really interesting is, as Steve made a very good point, you know, everyone is trying their hardest and there are so many wonderful doctors, but these are large systems with lots of moving parts. And Steve does a brilliant analogy here, and so does Dr. Marty McCurry, about the airline industry. Yeah. When a mistake happens, there is a collective response to uncover what the root cause problem was, what the truth of the matter was, what was the cause of any sort of airline mishap, and then make sure that that lesson, whatever it was, and the reports that come out of it are spread across industry-wide, internationally even, so that it doesn't happen again. And that doesn't seem to happen in the medical field. And what that does is allow these problems to persist rather than get solved. And unless you create an accountability, unless you create transparency, it's only going to persist. There's a reason it's the third leading cause of death in America, because nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah, and it's interesting that he makes the analogy with the airline industry because when you go in for surgery, you don't think about anything going wrong necessarily the same way when you get on a plane. You just think, yep, we're going to be fine. The chances of anything happening are really low. The guy at the front of the plane doesn't want to die any more than I do. So I'm just going to you know, place my trust even though I'm 30,000 feet above the ground. Like with, with the blind trust factor, I mean, even to this day, when I go to the doctor or when my wife goes to the doctor, we... Even though we have we've been profoundly changed by this situation with my mother, we still kind of like are just kind of trusting the doctors, kind of hoping that there's going to be good communication and that things are not going to fall through the cracks. But I, I personally don't think that we can afford to blindly trust anymore. I feel like, you know, you have to have an advocate. You have to have helpers. When you go into the hospital or someone you love goes in the hospital, I think you've got to have someone who's asking questions. You know, if you're sick, if you're in the emergency room, you're not in any position to be asking the litany of questions. And a lot of these questions are going to piss off doctors and nurses. But what I found out is these questions that your advocate is going to be asking for you or you on behalf of someone else, they're really going to force the doctors and hospitals and nurses and everyone involved in this to really think about what's happening. And the care is going to get better. Yeah. You know, like second opinions. This is something I, I absolutely thought doctors and hospitals, nobody wants to get a second opinion. You know, like if I, if I have a doctor that tells me I've got something wrong with my leg, I don't want to offend that doctor by going to get a second opinion. But actually, a really good doctor, they encourage second opinions because it makes them think about, is this really the best way to go? 
second opinions guarantee better treatment across the board. Yep. And it's really up to us, I think, to own our care and, and really be active on our own behalf if we don't have an advocate. One of the things I love about this film is that despite the seriousness of the subject matter, there is tons of humor in it. You actually indulged your mother in her desire to go back to driving. I wonder if you could talk about how hair raising that was just for you personally and then maybe even for the production team. Well, at that point, the production team was basically me, my mom, and a guy with a camera. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, we had a, yeah, my, my cameraman in Wisconsin, Dano, he was game for just about anything. And to be honest, I had no idea that scene was going to turn out to be kind of a funny, amusing scene. I, my mom was constantly calling me. You know, as I look back over the years, she basically wanted two things. Well, you know, she wanted three things. She wanted her life back the way it was, but she wanted to go home and she wanted to drive. And I swear to God, I think the driving was the most important thing to her because it was the loss of independence. And she would call me up and it's depicted in the film. She would call me up and she would please take me driving. And, and then she would call me up and she'd be crying, like sobbing, please take me crying. And then, then she'd try the sweet at the, oh, hi, Steve, I'm wondering, you know, and she tried every trick in the book. And <laughs> I knew, based on her, her testing, that she would never be able to drive. I mean, yeah. she can't even move her legs. Coming up after the break, what happens when Steve gives in to his mother's wish to start driving again, and how his family reacted to seeing the film that was 10 years in the making. Support for the AgeWise podcast comes from Mediterranean ALF, a family-owned and operated six-bed facility located in the heart of Palm Beach County, Florida. An alternative to traditional living facilities, Mediterranean ALF offers boutique-style accommodations where residents receive personalized care tailored to their needs in an environment that feels like home. Rest easy knowing your family member is being attended to 24 hours a day by highly trained, caring staff. To schedule a private tour, call 561-644-2353. Well, I thought, okay, I'm going to kind of trick my mom into, you know, I will indulge her, her wish, but I, I really was it, was, it was a very simple plan on my part. I thought if I could just show her, I'll try to do it, but if she can't get in the car and she can't turn on the car and she can't turn the wheel and she can't move her legs, then she's going to clearly see. And something happened that day. We, we, we got in there and Dano got in the back seat. And Mom obviously could not drive, but she starts laughing. Mm-hmm. And then I start laughing. <laughs> and I, I don't even really know why she's laughing, and I'm not even sure why I'm laughing. And now as I see the film with people, I'm not even sure why. And everybody starts laughing. And I, I have to be honest, I'm kind of puzzled by it. It just was organic and completely authentic, and it was funny. And we were lucky enough to actually have captured it on film. Yeah. It's, but it backfired because at the end, she, she's convinced that she actually did a right. good job. <laughs> right. And it took an actual medical diagnosis for her to be fully convinced, as with so many people. If a doctor tells you you can't do it, then okay, that's acceptable. My mom was the same way. With that's Charlie. right. Yeah, she, my mom's 89. You're, and she was the same way. You're absolutely right. If it, even after all of this, even to this day, if, if it comes from a doctor, my mom will buy it. If it comes from me, no way. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> yeah. she, she's been fighting me for, for 10 years. Oh my but if God. I say, Mom, the doctor said, oh, okay, why didn't you tell me that? Um, I wonder, did any family members object to being filmed, and has anyone seen the film? Uh, everybody in the film, you know, my whole family, 
everybody, all my my sisters, my every, everybody on my family and friends, uh, they all were incredibly supportive. Once we decided that we were going to try to make a film, and there was no guarantee when I was filming all these years that there was ever actually going to be a film. There was just for you know for the vast majority of this Latin, you know, these ten years, there was just footage. Right. It wasn't until I met Elon, and then Elon. Uh, introduced me to HBO and Impact, that's when the film actually became a film. Otherwise, I mean, this film lived and died many, many deaths over the years. It got stuck many times until I met Elon and HBO and Impact. But everybody, yeah, everybody was incredibly supportive, including my mother, who, uh, as you can see, certainly in the middle years of of this, um, she was all in. She, She wanted to tell her story. She had things she wanted to say, and she was all in. So, yeah, it's been an incredibly supportive group of people who have helped me uh, make this thing. And has anyone seen it since it's finished? And what has the reaction been, if so? Um, there have been internal screenings with certain members of my family, and they love it. Uh, it's difficult because they kind of forget. When you see, like, 10 years unfold in 90 minutes, Yeah, it's shocking for the people. You know, I, I think it's probably shocking for maybe people who obviously don't know it. You know, you could answer that better than I. Uh, but certainly for the, the people who have seen it in my family... They just can't believe that uh, this all happened. And it's still, like, we have nothing but questions. We don't really have any answers. We only have questions still yeah. to this day. But they love it, and they're angry, and they're scared. You know, but they, like my mom, we made this to hopefully help other people. Mm-hmm. And that was always the goal. Mm-hmm. So everyone's very supportive. And then there's a lot of people who are very anxious to see it, you know, like, coming on HBO, too. Now it's real. You know, it's not just a right. project we've been working on. Now right. it's like an actual movie. Right. So even your uncle was okay with it? I don't want to give too much away here, but there was a pretty big turn towards, you know, yeah, the end well, he, Yeah, he definitely, he definitely has not seen the movie. I haven't okay. seen my uncle since his deposition. Oh, okay. Uh, which was way back in 2014. Wow. So I, yeah, I haven't seen okay. him. But prior to that, though, in the early days, yeah, he was, he was all in, as he is in the film. He, he kind of broke the case. Yeah. He, it took a doctor, like it could have taken me years to figure out kind of what happened, but he figured it out within 10 minutes. Wow. And everything he said all those years ago turned out to be true. Wow. And so at the point that Elon came in, you, you had so much footage, so it was a matter of maybe shooting some more footage, but mostly putting it together. Is that right? Yeah, I originally started filming for my medical malpractice attorneys. Oh, right. They told me to film my mom's suffering, and mm-hmm. I dutifully did that. It was very difficult to film my mom at her worst. I hated yeah. doing it, but I did it because it was, you know, to help her in the long run. And then once I started to find out about, you know, the third leading cause of death and one in four patients are harmed by medical error and these EICU units that they have popping up all over the country. Then I thought maybe there's something more here than just, you know, my personal story. It seemed like it was more of a universal story, potentially. Mm-hmm. So I kept filming. I never had any real plan. I was just like gathering footage while we were gathering evidence in the, the lawsuit. And when I met Elon and Tom, you know, I just had like, I don't know, 200, 300 hours of stuff. You know, I had no, I didn't know if I even had a narrative at that point. You know, most films really are made in the editing room. Yeah. So the, at the point we came on board, it really was a matter of like, okay, well, what is our film? What has to come to the forefront? How do we mine all these years of footage and find story? And, you know, Steve, uh, more than any documentary I've ever worked on, really came to the forefront as the main character, but also really wrote this script in a sense. He knew this story backwards and forwards in his mind. And it was really all about how do you tell that as a narrative story versus a communication story, as a, something that he's just telling relating a story to versus how is this a movie? And that was really the challenge to find that. And 
Uh, we had a brilliant editor uh, named Jill Schweitzer who worked with Steve to bring the story out. But it really was all Steve in his mind really telling the story in a compelling way. And usually my job as a producer is to work with the director from the very beginning and really fashion and find a narrative and go after it. But this came to me sort of in an inverse way after years of him shooting on his own coming to me. So my job really at the end of the day came to how do I facilitate Steve's story? How do I facilitate it and help him tell that story the best way he can? That was our process, really. It took a number of years. But really, that's where the filmmaking itself really began is once we got into the edit room. And then I would just add real quick that the one thing that Elon really brought to this project was, because I was so deep in the weeds on the the minutia, like, you know, the, the medical stuff and my mom's care and the personal thing. But Elon saw the bigger picture. And Elon was the one who actually reached out to Dr. McCary. I was just going to ask and, you about that. Yeah. And then the yeah. Mayo Clinic. I mean, yeah. if you would have told me, you know, a comedy guy doing crazy pizza commercials in Scotland <laughs> would, would be interviewing, you know, one of the heads of the Mayo Clinic, I said, you're nuts. I mean, it didn't make any sense. But, but it um, Elon, yeah, he secured that. I mean, we, that we actually amazing. went to the I still can't believe that they even let me into the Mayo Clinic. I was wondering about Dr. McCary because he really sort of served as an anchor, like a sort of truth teller of his own to highlight the flaws in healthcare. I assume that you shot him when you came in, Elon. You, you guys shot him after. Yeah, yeah. somewhere in the end of 2016, I can't remember the exact date. Uh-huh. Uh, he's based in Washington, D.C. Um, he's a, a surgeon at uh, Johns Hopkins, and we went down there and interviewed him over yeah. the course of, I think, of a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, right, Steve? That's right. Yeah. Uh, Dr. McCary was 2016. I've got everything broken down. 2016 with Dr. McCary, 2017 Mayo Clinic. Even Dr. McCary, you know, I I felt even a little out of place because I'm no expert. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a son who's trying to protect his mom. And I'm now trying to make this film that I've never, you know, I've never made a documentary before. and, And I just wanted to be truthful and honest. And Dr. McCary was so, you know, obviously he knows his stuff. And he feels very passionate about it. And I was nervous. You know, I didn't know, what do I ask this guy? How do I do? I can't interview. I'm not an interviewer. I don't even know what I'm doing. And this guy just, he made it so easy for me. And so did Dr. Harper at the Mayo Clinic. They invited us into their place and their space and kind of gave us the ways to fix this system. You know, what it's, a contrast. it's not even that hard. Yeah, what a contrast at Mayo. Yeah. As compared to the 32,000 member Aurora healthcare system. Steve, it was so poignant to me when Margot, your wife, said she was worried that your sense of humor was fading. As a comedian, you know, it's such a big part of who you are. I wondered if you could just talk a bit about how this experience affected your sense of humor and your career. Well, I, that's a really good question. Um, first off, I have to say at this point, this is one of the reasons why I love my wife as much as I do. Because she, she was always, you know, I was looking after my mom and my wife was kind of looking after me. I wasn't really paying attention to my career or anything and really having to do with our, our lives. Um, I just got so obsessed with this thing. And I also didn't know it was going to go on as long. I thought, is this going to happen? Is this going to be a six-month thing? Is this going to be a two-year thing? Next thing you know, it's five. And I just knew I couldn't give it up. And I told her at one point, I didn't feel funny anymore. I didn't know if it had been knocked out of me or if it had just been beaten out of me. Or I, you know, I used to always lead with funny, and now I was leading with you know, my checklist of questions for doctors and lawyers. And I got really frightened at one point, and my wife, she told me, she said, Steve, it's still there. You just, just let it breathe a little bit. You, know, you give yourself a break. And I would say in the last few years, once we started actually making this film, I think my sense of humor actually went into hibernation for several years. And, but once we started making the film, 
it started to like rear its head every once in a while, you mm-hmm. know, just kind of naturally. And I, I was very, very concerned about not trying to horn in, you know, humor in this movie, like yeah. write jokes or do bits. Right. You know, I, I did a, I did a couple things early on that I thought, you know, that were kind of funny, but they just weren't appropriate for this movie. Mm-hmm. So then I just pulled way back and I waited for the opportunities, like the driving sequence is one of right. those things where really like, like I, just, I just waited for something to happen. Yeah. And yeah, it, it actually in the whole movie, by the way, for me was improv. one huge improvisational <laughs> experiment. <laughs> that you know. totally comes across. Somebody told me, yeah, so somebody told me years ago, cause I, I did ask some people early on when we thought about making a documentary, you know, how do you do this? And, and somebody told me it's like you're on a raft on a river, just go with it. You're going to have turns and there's going to be things that are going to happen, but don't force it. Don't try to go back up river. Don't try to, force a tangent in or force something and just go with it. And, and I really tried hard to do that. And, uh, that was not easy for me, but I, I, I am slowly finding my sense of humor. It's there. The one, I would say the one change, honestly, is I, certain things just seem a little frivolous to me. And, and then I realized that, well, we, I need some frivolous, silly stuff too. You know, yeah. it's all important, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The film has so many moments of both absurd and dark humor. It's got suspense and drama, you name it. But for me, as much as this is a compelling medical story, it's also a love story. It's a commitment that you made to your mom's care because of your love for her, which was so moving. I literally cried in moments of this film because my mom's 89 and she's broken her hip and she's been hospitalized. And so my question to you is how did you balance your rage with such focus and calm. How did you sustain that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. A really great question. And you know what? I don't know. I think, you know, because I, I have such anger. I still am so angry over what happened and not having answers after all these years. But I, I kept it in check. You know, I think my wife really helped me there, like keep my focus, keep my eye on the prize. You know, don't make it about me. It's about my mother. You know, it's always been about, number one, taking care of her and trying to get to the truth so that we can get some justice. And anytime I kind of spiraled out of control, which was in the early days, often, I was completely unproductive. I wasn't getting anything done. I was going in circles. And uh, I had to kind of teach myself to stay on point and keep it together. You know, going through the lawsuit, going through the trial, it was hard to listen to some of the things I heard at these events. And I, I'm right there at, at these depositions. I'm yeah. right there. And, you know, there were times I wanted to like just blow, but I, I kept it together because it, it wasn't about me. It was about my mom. Yeah. When that intensivist said at the deposition, could you define awareness? I just thought, wow, that is so Clintonian. That's almost like, depends on what the definition of the word is, is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, I'm still trying to figure that one out. You know, and I wasn't allowed to, by the way, I also was not allowed to speak in any of these depositions. So that was also <laughs> incredibly hard for me. I was told right away, you can't say anything. I'm like, nothing? So, yeah, I had to keep my mouth shut for those things went on for years. Wow. So how often do you see your mom now? I know she's in assisted living, correct? She's in assisted living. We just started long-term hospice with her this past month. Mm-hmm. In the early days, I'd go back twice a month and... I've been pretty good over the years, uh, at least once a month. It's just kind of like my wife and I, we just, it's just kind of in the schedule now somehow. And I go back certainly for emergencies, um, which there have been many. 
But in general, I go back at least once a month. She used to be able to talk so well, and she's no longer able to really speak. And that's very hard for me, but boy, it's hard for her because she still knows what's going on. And she still wants to talk. She still wants to be able to articulate. And I, I know my mother, and of all of her problems, her inability to speak is the one that I think is probably the one that hurts the most for her. Mm. I wonder if you could talk about the plans for the film beyond HBO. Maybe you can both address this. Well, sure. As I was saying earlier, uh, with our company, Creative right. Chaos, our goal is always social impact and social action. So we usually plan sort of a long tail social action release after the release of the movie itself. So what that would entail is partnering with reform um, organizations and different organizations that are involved in this space, whether it's Mothers Against Medical Error or the Josie King Foundation or so many other organizations in the space trying to bring awareness to the cause. One of the things that the power of film has is that it can really elevate that message. Uh, and we've seen that on some of our previous films as well. So it's our hope that we'll take this film almost roadshow it around the country in different organizations, whether it's malpractice conferences or it's you know, reform conferences or at hospital organizations or, or whatever it could be to really raise the awareness on us, to create some sort of movement around it. Uh, and the film has the potential to do that. HBO is such a great platform because obviously so many people will see this more than would ever see it in a theater. So we can use that as a springboard to really get the message out there. Yeah. Uh, so that's our hope, really. And we could spend a year, two years, really traveling around with the film and really seeing the impact happen. And it's organic and it's grassroots. Every time someone sees the film, someone pops up and says, oh, you should take it here or you should take it there or I know this person. And it's a very organic process, mm -hmm. um, but it's what's terrific about it because it really creates a community of like-minded people who rally around the film and rally around the cause. Yeah. Well, Steve, what is next for you? How is your life going now? Well, you know, literally, <laughs> we, ju we just finished the film. Yeah. And as you know, it comes out on December 17th. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I want to get back to comedy. I have been working on a few uh, feature comedy scripts. I have a drama that I've been working on. And weirdly enough, I've somehow slowly been able to pull those together. I'd love to get back to comedy full time if possible. But I think that, you know, I've changed. I'm no longer just a comedy guy anymore. I keep asking my wife, you know, what's different? The world's changed. And she's like, no, Steve, you've changed. Hmm. You're not just silly commercial beer commercial pizza guy anymore you know you have something to say and I, I never thought i'd make a documentary i never thought i'd be sitting here talking to you about a, a documentary film that's going to be on hbo so i'm i'm going to be very careful but i'm going to try to figure out very soon where i'm going i'm, I'm a little undecided right now but I, I need to jump back into comedy in some way i know that you'll find the way do either one of you have any last thoughts I would just want to. I would just want to thank you for. I would really want to thank you for watching the movie and responding to it and uh, having us on your show. It, it just means a great deal to to us and to me and to my mom. Mm. Um, I'd love for her to hear this, and I, I might be able to actually play this for her. I'd love for her to hear this, and she she'd really understand and appreciate it. And and, uh, and I will do that actually. Great, Elon. Anything to add? No, it's just thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for the work that you do in this podcast. And we're, we're very grateful to be on it and have a, a voice for our film. So thank you. We've been speaking with filmmaker and comedian Steve Burrows about his documentary film Bleed Out and with producer Elon Arboleda, co-founder of Creative Chaos VMG. 
the production company behind the film. Bleed Out airs on HBO Monday, December 17 at 8 p.m. Eastern in the U.S. And we'll have more information about the film on the AgeWise website. So be sure to check that out. Steve and Elon, congratulations to both of you on completing this entertaining and really important film. Thank you so much for making it. I want everybody to see this. It is absolutely incredible. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, please tell your friends about it and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. <laughs>